Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we are discussing another story from Ted Chang's collection, Exhalation. And this story is called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. This is one of the longest stories in the collection. It was actually published earlier as a novella. And it's a pretty involved story about AI and a particular take on AI. So the the, the main assumption in this world is that the way we're going to get to AI is by training the AI as if it was a child over many, many years. Taking part in that story, we've got two major characters. We've got Anna Alvarado and Derek Brooks. Um, and it's kind of an almost love story. But a lot of the central action is about parenting. Uh, they both start out working at the same company, which is called Blue Gamma, which makes something called a genomic engine, which is basically what this story calls genetic algorithms, where you kind of evolve organisms through a fake Darwinian process until you evolve some kind of life that's ideal. And Neuroblast is the name of their genomic engine. And I should say that all of the, I mean, the story is called the life cycle of software objects. So all of the AI in this story takes place in like a second lifestyle uh, virtual reality world. None of it is at least at first embodied, right? That's the main way that these AIs exist is that software. Right. They have these, it's like Data Earth is the name of it in the in the story. And it's a simulation world like Second Life that people are accessing through, it seems like desktop computers. We can, we'll go over the technology later. It's similar to like a game world or there's games inside it, I guess, uh, that are built inside it. Uh, but it's just a, a world where there are like continents and islands and, and you can have interactions with various software entities. And that's where these... Uh, software objects that are in the title live and they interact with other people through that as well as with their trainers which the main characters become trainers of of these particular almost like pet-like AIs and then it becomes a story about parenting basically as you're saying as they raise and train these AIs and the AIs develop into more and more complex uh, beings. And relatively early in the story the company goes under and they end up adopting some of the the mascots of the company some of the main AIs that the company had been training and they decide to keep them around and continue to raise them as children long after the company is gone and it's sort of about the challenges they, they face in that process. Right, right. In some ways, it's a story about people who are fanatically uh, attached to some abandonware, right? And they, they sort of start a user group, and then there's like an open source project. The, they get the engine released by the former company. All these things happen in the story where they're like trying to extend this project further and further because to the people who have bonded with these software objects, they're like children or pets or something. They don't want to just suspend them and, and not have them around anymore. They feel uh, connected to them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was like the strongest sort of uh, real world analogy that I got out of this. I mean, yes, there's, it's in some ways it's like actual parenting of a human child, but the feeling that I got was one of sort of the, the transience of these online digital communities, right? right. When they, they spring up around a topic, uh, the internet's now relatively old, so we've, we can go back and there's actually a history of communities springing up, rising and falling, brief concentrations around particular forums or online worlds, whether that's Second Life or World of Warcraft or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then often over time, uh, the community shifts or falls apart. And oftentimes that's due to the software actually going obsolete or 
uh, no longer being compatible with new systems or just the user base falling out. Yeah, and that's something that's well dramatized in this story. When the when the simulation world goes under, they uh, f- face a big problem because they have to try to figure out how to port their engine uh, into a new platform, basically. And I actually thought it was funny to see how many competing s- software worlds were in this story. I felt like that almost puts a little bit of a date on the story this one's been around a little bit longer. I forget what year it was originally published, but I remember reading it in hardcover form some time ago. So I think it was a while ago. And, it, you know, I think these days we think of uh, the Internet as being more consolidated and less uh, volatile. So I thought it was an interesting choice to have three major companies and then two of them go out of business and somebody else disrupts it. <laughs> uh, well... I, I don't know, actually. I mean, I, I think if you look at it a different way, right? I mean, yes, we have a lot of consolidation. Yeah. But we still we still hit about three companies, right? That are that take part in that consolidation. Oh, I think in this world only Facebook is is building anything like this. Like the kind of Oculus world feels kinda close to me. But like Google and Apple, for example, or Amazon, they don't have well, VR chat is the is the closest thing that I can actually think of to right. uh, that's like the more contemporary reference than Second Life, say. Right, but that's an um, app that's running on these VR platforms, right? Right, but I yeah. but I also think that that is not. I mean, I think it's early days for this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, and you know, if you if you don't think of it as purely VR, if you think of it as just all social media, then we then again we have at least three platforms that people use. So yeah, that's true. And to be fair, it is not VR in the story. I mean, they they access it through computers, terminals, and then later uh, she says she uses a handheld in the park. But that sounds like it's basically a phone. So the technology suppositions are not they're not actually VR. They're like three D worlds, but on screens. Yeah, that was a weird element because yeah, it's a three D rendered world. Right. But yeah, there's no indication. I guess I just added VR because that was a constant question for me with the story. Yeah. But they never said like you know she dons her headset or anything. So yeah, yeah. The indication is she's just looking at a monitor, I guess. But that seems really that seems like an odd choice. Yeah, I had marked that in my notes here as it seems like VR, but. It's desktop. There's clicks and windows, <laughs> basically. And it, like yeah. they keep saying words that indicate that it's a it's still a desktop metaphor, um, but the way that the characters are interacting with it feels more like the way uh, people interact with VR. Um, so, I feel like you can easily update. It's I think it's just a, a function of the story's age, and you can easily kind of update it in your mind, uh, and then it works. <laughs> well, but you know what they have though that is that is somewhat VR ish mm-hmm. is they definitely have face tracking. Right, because this was there was a moment. Um, we'll just zoom in here to this particular moment where one of the uh, the users of these pets, right? Because the, the company develops these pets, they come up with what they think are like a pretty good range of pets that are going to be fun for people to raise, and they sell them to the public uh, in sort of a pre linguistic form, right? So that people can raise and train their own virtual pet child thing. Um, and, you know, and some of them are panda bears and some of them look like little Victorian robots and some of them look like chimps and so on. And uh, someone is raising their pet and is complaining on the help forums, basically, that uh, their their pet is just not learning, right? It's not speaking. And they eventually, like, they do a little tech support and they figure out that the reason it's not working is that the person's avatar is like something very abstract, like a bunch of gold coins floating in the air or something. Right. And it's not doing face tracking, so there's no facial expressions because I guess these like software 
beings like are really trained and cued into human facial expressions. So they must be doing face tracking with cameras. Right. And there's so, a later part of the story where she tries to let the robot use a computer to do some technical workaround so he could use the other platform that he's not written for or something. And uh, that scene, they, they mentioned that the cameras have a hard time tracking his robot body because it's not a human body, which is what the tracking cameras are, I, I suppose, designed for. So yeah, I think that's right. They seem to have desktop computers with some kind of tracking cameras, maybe Connect style. Yeah, uh, like a Connect type thing. Yeah. Uh, rigs, um, which, you know, seems futuristic uh, for a few years ago. So I'm assuming that's sort of where the assumption comes from. But uh, yeah, I... I did realize as I was reading it, like, oh, this should all be VR. That would make more sense. Um, but I, it doesn't seem to, like, affect... I mean, the story logic works. You just have to kind of update the tech in your head. Well, and it's it's vague enough. I mean, you know, Ted Chang has a knack for, like, kind of really just focusing on just the things that really matter. Yeah. So, like, a lot of this stuff is pretty invisible. So you could almost read it and picture VR headsets, and it... It it bumps very little. <laughs> like again, it has all, it doesn't really change much. Yeah, every once you know? in a while you get a word like clicks and you get confused, but it's not. Yeah, not often. Yeah. Uh, um. So maybe we should we should probably I think just start by digging into the, just the main core concept here. Okay. Right. right. Which is that human level AI is going to require some kind of good parenting. Uh. Because you know there's multiple attempts within the story by multiple companies using multiple different uh, algorithms to uh, try to create AI sometimes by, and, and this is the thing, it's gotta be really hands-on training because what we see dramatized in the story are people are like, well, you know, what if we leave uh, a bunch of these organisms, you know, alone in what they call a hothouse where they just like run it through many generations in a very rapid amount of time. Right. That was a concept in the story. Hothouse is just basically speeding up the subjective time, I, I suppose, by running the simulation faster. Right. Right. It's never specifically said, but they kind of seem to have that concept in the world. And they do that. And what happens is they go feral, basically. They, they said they're, they're too uh, good natured to go Lord of the Rings. You mean Lord of the Flies. Or, I'm sorry, Lord of the Flies. Yes. Lord of the Rings would be bizarre if they became that. They just for some reason. <laughs> Started going on quests. Exactly. They don't become Lord of the Flies, but they become these like troops of non-hierarchical, um, just marching AIs, I guess. They don't learn and they don't ad like advance towards better technology or any kind of structured civilization. Right. Which is, which is what those researchers in that part of the story were hoping for. And it's, of, of course, not at all what they were designed for, right? I mean, they were designed to be these sort of childlike or pet-like, you know, barely conscious creatures that you could play with. So... It's maybe not totally surprising that they do not surpass that. Although the main genomic engine that develops the creatures that are that our characters are concerned with is called Neuroblast, mm -hmm. right? But there's at least three others that are mentioned in the story. The one that's like called Sophance, I think it is. Uh, yeah, that's right. Needs like the least human interaction to be trained. Yeah. So it, it, it can bootstrap itself a little more efficiently, but it's also like not fun to work with or something. Well, it's like a simulated obsessive basically, right? So it, it, it becomes obsessed with whatever you first teach it to do and then it can get good at that on its own. That's the upside. The downside is no one wants to spend any time with this obsessive robot. Right. And the, and the upshot is that, you know, the big picture, there's just like there's trade offs everywhere and no one seems to be able to like find a quick and dirty or fast process for generating useful AIs that can be assistants and so on. Right. Uh, it just seems like it, there's no way around just investing a lot of time as a parent. Um, 
And you know, maybe if you do that long enough, eventually you'll have uh, then a, a truly good AI that you can then copy. Uh, but you know that's the main supposition of the story, and right. that comes out of the the mouths of the main characters in a pretty strong way at multiple points in the story, right? Like uh, uh, Derek uh, says, you know, complex minds can't develop on their own in kind of like a like a unequivocal fashion, and then Anna uh, says that experience is the only teacher. And I don't know if this is like these aren't Ted Chang's words necessarily. No, but certainly th these characters believe this. Yes, exactly. The characters uh, are totally bought into the idea that uh, intelligence must be raised. Essentially, the world does seem to uphold these characters' opinions here. Um, and of course, this is one path to AI that is discussed. Well, to be fair, nobody reaches super intelligence in the story, right? Because I mean, they go and they talk to the people who have a different idea, the exponential appliances people, right? They're just trying to sell products so they can fund some billionaire founders vision for AI, but then they are never successful in their strategy either. I think it's just sort of represented that it's hard or this is an in-between time where that's not going to get solved, right? Well, no, no. No, they don't reach super intelligence, but they do reach human level. Yeah. I mean, our, the, the characters that we follow are, are supposed to be right. human level. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they achieve human level, which yeah, is something right. we don't have now, but the only way they get there is by is by training them right. through like this arduous parenting process. Right. So I, I just I just want to highlight that main speculation. And traditionally programmed AIs are represented as not human level. They're useful. That's what it says. They're useful, but they're not conscious. Yeah. Well, and actually even for like non-conscious activities, there's an example of like a crab robot that like pulls weeds or something. Yeah, it's like a lawn care robot, right? Which that one is actually installed in like a like some sort of mech. But the way that's was created is that it was evolved as well. Like I, it was, it was maybe not a like a childlike training process, but it was like more of this right. evolutionary process, which is closely related. So I mean, that is more or less the the assumption here, and I think that's not necessarily the most plausible way to get to AI. Obviously, there's many many other ways that we've talked about that might be that I think people are expecting to happen uh, first. Although I mean, I, I I think this is a perspective you could have. I think it could go this way. But uh, you, I mean, we also could very easily get to emulated minds first, or just a very traditional, you know, top-down programming approach might work just fine. Uh, or, or it may just be that you can speed it up, right? I mean, the fact that they all of these algorithms are very resistant to any kind of process that you know doesn't involve tons of human interaction. Again, it's a little bit of an unusual claim. I think that's the whole premise of the story, so you got to go with that. But I, I just want to flag that as something that's maybe not super likely. Yeah. Did you look at uh, Robin Hansen's commentary on this? You know, I did not. What did he say about it? Well, so he did one of his very not formal Twitter polls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he got something like 700 responses, and, and the consensus was that people thought it was like a less than 1% chance that this was the path to human-level AI. Mm. So, I mean, you know, that's not a scientific way to determine, but, I mean, that's an indication that this, like, particular conceit is maybe not thought of as likely by the community, at least. Right, right. Well, and... Yeah, it does seem like if it is, in fact, the limiting factor that it kind of defeats the technology for many of the things you would want to develop it for. So then that raises the question of how much development is going to go into this, which I think is actually somewhat addressed in the story because the this is not a viable economic 
concern going forward. And in fact, this, the company does go out of business. And it seems like other attempts to make AIs through um, training are, th- th- they're making different trade-offs on purpose in order to make them, you know, easier to train. Yeah, there's definitely, there's no free lunch here. Yeah. Um, and I maybe we should talk about how it goes out of business because the company, first of all, I thought it was funny that the company's business model was selling food pellets. Yes, right. You have to feed it to keep it alive, right? Like kind of like a Tamagotchi, right? Well, well but it's the, con- it's the main conditioning mechanism. Right. Right. The way you train these things is like when they do something good, you give them a pellet. So, so maybe they die, maybe they don't. I'm not totally clear on that, but it's like the only way to like get them to do what you want. So yeah, that is a pretty interesting business model. It very closely aligns, you know, the company's success with people's ongoing interest in the AIs, which is basically their undoing. Uh, People lose interest in them. But you'd think that maybe they would have anticipated that and come up with ways to keep people's interest going. Well, I think people lose interest because, uh, you know, they've only raised these things themselves in the lab for a year or something at the time that they released this. So... Once the the user base, you know, gets their creatures beyond that time frame, there, some new behaviors occur that you know make their these pets harder to wrangle and uh, more disobedient, and you know, just like just more work, right? I mean, it's a lot of work raising a child, you know, let alone like a digital being that never sleeps uh, and doesn't function quite the way a human works. So you know, people, yeah, I think just get worn out, and then their their business falls apart. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned suspension, which I think is something interesting, like because we have some of the issues that go along with being a digital being, right? Which is that they can they can be suspended, which is basically put on pause and then turn back on as if nothing happened, uh, you know, as much as a year later. Yep. Um, they can be rolled back to checkpoints. Yep. Right. And then they just uh, lose their so memories, like, basically, of that time. Yeah, you just go back to like whatever you know mind state you were at uh, two days ago. Yep. Um, and of course, they can be copied. Yep. And uh, we get it. You know, obviously, these are all things that are like totally mind bending and upsetting to like a human sense of identity, right? Which we talked about before. Right. Um, but it's interesting because we do get the perspective of these creatures. Actually, we should use their proper name, which is Digiant. Yeah, right? they're called Digiants. I think digital entities is the portmanteau that's happening here. Digiant, I guess. Okay, I wasn't sure if maybe it was sentient or... Uh, I think I but, could be wrong, but that was what I thought it was doing. Um, okay, but, that, yeah. I'll go with that. But uh, they uh, they actually ask um, at one point, there's a there's a scene where uh, two two brothers, because they're, they're copied from the same uh, like ultimate source, uh, like genomic engine or whatever. Right. They're two instantiations uh, of the same genes, but they're they're trained differently, so they have different personalities, right? Marco and Polo. They, Marco and Polo. Yeah, they're both uh, panda bears, right. and these are the uh, the ones that uh, Derek Brooks adopts. Um, so they've diverged, but they're so they're but they're I'll just call them brothers because that's essentially what they are. Yeah. So they uh, they at one point have a fight, and they're so uh, upset over this fight that they ask to be rolled back so that they can forget the fight. Um, which is a really strange thing. I, I guess you could imagine a human asking for that, but... Um, sure, it's the same as the concept to eternal sunshine and the spotless mind, right? That's true, that's true. So, yeah, So, but they're they're totally willing to embrace that concept. They're also cool with the idea of being copied, which comes up as a plot point much, much later in the story. Yeah. Um, 
and they they're they're okay with that. They're not as okay with the idea of being suspended. Right. Um, right. Yeah, that was an interesting choice, right? That they they preferred not to be suspended, but it wasn't done as cheesy as I think it sometimes is in these robot stories where they just seem to prefer to know what was going on um, rather than being like deathly afraid of it, which which always feels like a, a bit much when the robot like in short circuit or something is, you know, afraid of being turned off like it's death. That's that's true. I, and I think for them, it's more like, you know, our they have friends in this digital world and it's like you fall behind, right? Right. They didn't want to miss out on stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So something I wanted to talk about is the idea that they have pain circuit breakers. Do you remember this? Oh yeah. The company installed these circuit breakers to discourage sadists from screwing with them on purpose for fun. And then that sort of comes up later when uh, hackers figure out a way to basically torture them. So this raises a ton of questions for me. Yeah. Because... Uh, And actually, it reminds me of something that I had meant to talk about when we reviewed Autonomous that I forgot. Because in that story as well, Paladin, and in some ways that story is all about embodied robots, whereas this one's about digital robots. But uh, there's a scene very early in Autonomous where Paladin the robot uh, loses his arm and describes it as painful. And of course, obviously, in this story, uh, software objects, if they've got pain circuit breakers, they must have pain. And it just raises the obvious question, which is why code them to feel pain at all? Right. Uh, And can't you... I mean, I get that you need a signal of don't do this, right? You need a negative reinforcement pathway of some kind. Um, But why does it have to go with some sort of experience of pain? Unless it's just like an artifact of the sort of evolutionary process that they're using. Like it's so closely tied to the way that biological uh, development works that it just sort of ends up in there as a accidental byproduct. Right, like it's just a feature of the engine is sort of what I was imagining, right? That it's just too, because of its biomimicry. But it also could just be that whatever the negative feedback mechanism is, and this isn't said in the story, this is just me speculating, but whatever the negative feedback mechanism is maybe is just properly called pain does that make sense like maybe whatever you call it it's just experienced by the subjective ai consciousness as you know something analogous to pain as a strong like you know anti-preference it's just uh, yeah you're just sending it a dislike flag or whatever you know in, in the code but that's just how it interprets that and maybe there's no way to get outside of that concept like maybe if you want to have any kind of ai that is negatively reinforced it will feel something that you can analogize to pain analogize yes but and and this is i mean this gets to this sort of like hard problems right like you know what the qualia or like actual lived experience of that is we don't know what they feel right exactly but i think to the extent that you had any control over this and Again, I'm willing to suspend disbelief here maybe because it's an evolved process and maybe they don't have fine-tuned control. It certainly doesn't seem like they do. It seems like you would just leave the pain out. Well, yeah, if they have circuit breakers, then why? They could just set the threshold to zero. It does seem like they have the control. And then these hackers, they take the circuit breakers off, right, and expose them to complete pain. So I see no reason why someone who had the source code couldn't do the opposite and make it impossible for them to feel pain. Right, yeah, I guess so, yeah, the circuit breakers already imply that they can, like, reach in and tweak that variable. 
I, I guess it's weird that that variable is there to me at all because then I, I mean as long as the variable is there, the hackers can mess with it. But um, but yeah, it I I, I don't know. I, I just found that I find that odd when that's just it's just sort of assumed that the AI has pain. But I mean maybe it's outside the the realm of the story to discuss that. Um, but I mean going along with that point, right? Is that um, they are also? I mean, the reason you'd put pain circuit breakers is because you are worried about them feeling pain. So they're already being treated like sentient uh, individuals that are deserving of respect, like immediately. Yes, and right? the people, the main characters in the story, treat them that way immediately, and that's like one of the things they sort of bond over as humans is that they feel strongly that these things have. Uh, rights and that we have responsibility toward them basically and it it doesn't seem like the world in general shares their thoughts but certainly that is the way that the characters that we're closest to feel in the story okay yeah so maybe it's just the close pov because yeah i wasn't clear i kind of thought maybe the whole world or at least the company ethos right yeah. because again they they put in these pain circuit breakers but i thought the company was sort of breaking new ground here right it was sort of Again, we, we don't know exactly how what else is happening in the world, but it seemed like these were the, the most advanced AIs of the time, at least at the beginning of the story. Right, and then they get uh, surpassed. Right, right. But So I'd expect there to be some sort of conversation or debate around whether or not these things actually are conscious or deserve uh, this kind of treatment. Uh, but I don't know... I don't know. I, I guess the story is ultimately not as much about that as you would think. Right. It seemed to me like that was the belief of our characters, but that it was something of a fringe belief. It was my general sense in reading the story. Uh, but I guess that wasn't based on a lot of cues, so I don't know exactly why I thought that. Um, now, something else that occurred to me, uh, we talked about how um, they can be copied. And I think in one sense, this is something the story gets right. Um, they didn't just like say, oh, they can't be copied because they take up too much memory or something. Like They are treated as software, right. more or less, mm -hmm. um, and the problems and advantages that go with software um, to a degree. I don't think this is like 100% thought through. Um, actually, like Hansen made a really good point um, on his blog about this, that like there's this point later in the story where they're stuck in this old... Uh, virtual world data earth and they can't like nobody's using it anymore it's obsolete right but they can't be ported out of it we already sort of described that but they're stuck there and they're they're alone I mean there's less and less digients because people are giving up on them and suspending them so they have a smaller and smaller community and they're basically in this big lonely empty ghost town of a VR world by themselves but they don't like copy them to create friends for them which would be one fix. Right, right. Right, like I guess, I mean, I, I get in a sense that like the human trainers from their point of view, if they're still sort of like stuck thinking in human terms, it might not occur to them to like copy their child a bunch of times. Um, but that's a solution to the loneliness problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is never discussed in the story. A another like thing, and, and you alluded to this earlier, is that... Um, Again, this at the same moment in the story that I was just talking about, where they're they're like stuck in this like lonely copy of this uh, like virtual world that's out of date. Yeah. Um, all of their friends that have left that world are now in the new world, which is called real space, I believe. Yeah. Um, now, 
there are robot bodies that these things can jump into yeah. periodically. Um, and then they can, you know, walk around the real world. And uh, so once they're in the real world, they could, you know, grab a mouse, uh, put on a headset, look at a monitor. Like they could just sort of log in the way that a human logs in. Right. And that is in the story. In, it is in the story, and it's like waved away. Yeah. Like, and I, I wasn't a hundred percent convinced at the way it is addressed for sure, because it's like an obvious like thing to try. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's described as if like they just can't. They're so used to being in the space that they like cannot get used to interacting with it. Well, basically, they um, don't like using the screen and mouse because it's nowhere near as immersive as having your consciousness inside a simulation. Which I get, but it does seem to me that there should be some kind of VR technology in this world because they have, you know, uh, human level AI <laughs> and we have VR technology now, you know. Uh, so um, it seems like they should have been able to fit something on the robot or access a port on the robot so that they could more directly interface with the computer or something uh, that would allow them to get a good enough experience um even through you know whatever translation layer has to happen because they can't run natively on the platform but i understand why for the story purpose uh chang didn't want it to go there because he's trying to set up a tough choice right i mean he wants to make it so that they really want to get ported to this other thing but there's really no economic reason to do it um and then one arises and uh they have to decide whether it's uh a good thing or not. Yeah, no, and he, he definitely addresses the issue. It's just like, I... Do you remember, though, like, what his explanation was for, like, why don't they just hang in the real world in general since they've got these robot bodies? Is it just too dangerous? No, that is not addressed, and that's a good point because at first the robot bodies are too expensive, but one of the things that's good about this story, so it's an episodic story where uh, it periodically will skip a year or two years or six months forward because it's about raising these beings. So you, you skip over the, the routine and you get to the milestones. And uh, one of the after one of the breaks, um, it's noted that fabrication technology has gotten better and the robots are much cheaper to buy now. So now uh, e they each own robot bodies where before they were like renting one or there was one that was like a gift, a prototype gift or something. Uh, now they've each got robot bodies for their digients and they may as well, yeah, just leave them in there all the time, right? I mean, I'm sure they have to charge up the body, but other than that, it should be able to just hang out in the real world without reprogramming. Why that's not considered, I don't know. I mean, it seems like they go to the park now and then, but yeah, they, they don't just like make it their new home. Another analogy that's brought up in the story, by the way, is uh, as they get older, they start analogizing them to uh, children with Down syndrome. And uh, there's a Derek's sister works with uh, works with uh, Down syndrome kids, which is wh where the analogy comes from. Uh, but they are starting to think about them in tr uh, in similar terms in the sense that they know they'll never have the exact same capabilities as a human being, but they want to make sure that they have you know, uh, a, f a full life. Right. Uh, p the parents are considering that on behalf of these, you know, profoundly alien software kids that they have. Right, and it's an open question what their potential to grow actually is. Right. So at, at one point, uh, they decide to aggressively educate them. I mean, they, they teach them to speak, obviously, and I think to read relatively mm -hmm. 
uh, early on, but eventually they're, they get tutors and they get homework and they basically get schooled. Yes. Um, and, and they find that, you know, they, they can learn quite a bit and, and, you know, like it does seem to have sort of a special needs analogy. I think they talk about them taking standardized tests at some point and that they actually are pretty good if they get some light special accommodations. Right, right. They're similar um, to dyslexics. They have trouble with certain letters. There's like a tick in this story where they always replace vowels with eyes that I thought was an interesting textual way to indicate to you that they are slightly subhuman level. But you know. but we're we're approaching what I think my biggest critique of the story okay, is actually. Good. Which is that I didn't like the way they talked throughout. Yeah. Um they they use this like broken baby talk. Yes. Uh which, you know, it's analogous to like a uh, like a like a child. It's, yeah, or a chatbot, right? Which is I think the I think that's the analogy that's being made. It it sort of feels like a little bit like a, a slightly more advanced version of a chatbot. It's just it's it starts feeling really strange by the end. Yeah. Because by by the end, Marco and Polo, right, these two like panda bear <laughs> children of Derek that he's been raising, yeah. uh, they are um they're pretty clever at that that point and they, they start, you know, arguing with him about how they should have rights and how you know, and they're like they're they're pretty good debate partners. Yeah, they want to become um, incorporated, which is the way that these things get some rights in this world. Um and they argue for uh, yeah, pretty persuasively that they ought to be allowed it. Yeah, I mean, from a philosophical content perspective, uh, they they make some pretty smart arguments. Yeah. So why are they still talking like that? It's just a, it seems a little odd. I mean, I guess maybe it's again, it's sort of a stand-in for the fact that something about them is not quite right. Yeah. Yeah. But they seem to be reasoning at a very high level, yeah. from what I can tell. Well, I agree that I got a little annoyed with the caveman uh, grammar. I actually liked the replacing vowels with eyes gimmick. That gimmick, I thought, was a really good textual way to remind me as I was reading um, that they are different, right? That you wouldn't... I don't... Can, can you explain that? What do you mean the vowels with So, like, sometimes thing? instead of saying ball, he'll say bill. Or, like, he'll literally just replace a vowel in a word that would not be an I oh, right. normally with okay. an I, uh, the, the software object will do that when he's speaking back, uh, Jax or, or, or Marco and Polo. And it, it was a, it was a simple way. Uh, it didn't change my understanding of the sentence. I could figure it out easily. Um, but it let me know, Oh, they're, they're just somehow slightly off or slightly different or, um, not fully comprehending every, uh, bit of the language here. And that I thought was a kind of cool gimmick. I liked that gimmick as just a textual way because you can't see them. I think if it was a movie, you wouldn't need that. They would have a robotic aspect to them naturally that you would you would pick up on right away. Um, but I thought it was a cool way to remind me that they're like slightly different. Although I do agree with you that, especially as it goes on, their grammar should have improved more. And by the right, they drop whole words all the time, yeah. like articles and things. Yeah, and then they have like that caveman or childlike sort of. Yeah, speech where only the really concrete ideas get a word. And uh, that didn't seem analogous to how their intellects had grown. So I would have liked it better if they were having, you know, 
full sentences, but maybe sometimes the vowels were an I uh, instead yeah, of... Yeah, that feels more unique and algorithmic or something. Yeah, like they way. just always mixed up I with other vowels because they have like a kind of dyslexia that com- that is a limitation of their engine. And that's uh, part of the fact that they're in early development. So, I mean, I, I'm willing to buy that, okay, there's some fundamental limits to what this thing can do. Um, but I liked it better when they were showing up as just weird artifacts and not showing up in a in a way that's actually recognizable as like the way that um, children speak or uh, developmentally challenged people speak or uh, cavemen <laughs> might speak. I feel like those we've covered like the main like foregrounded issues here. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that's different about this story from other Ted Chiang stories, and one of the reasons that, uh, we wanted to review this one in particular, is that, uh, and maybe because it's longer, mm-hmm. this feels like much more of a big world, right? I mean, yes. Chang is usually laser focused on like a single philosophical concept and like doesn't have a lot of other background material. Well, either that or he's but, building a whole world out of clockwork and it's, you know, it's such a universal scope that it, you you don't feel. But this one had a lot of ground floor details about little things that were developing and changing in this world. Uh, the other thing is that because it is episodic and it's moving through time, he is uh, doing something that you and I like, which is he's dramatizing technical change. So it's not just that there's a big world, but there's actually a shifting world where things are getting cheaper and better and having more capabilities. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And actually, I have a list of some of these background details. I can't guarantee they're in the order they actually showed up in the story. Okay, yeah, I marked a few too. Uh, Let's go through them. Okay, so one of the ones, and this is something we've talked about before, uh, Derek Brooks, who we've mentioned, one of the main characters, um, he's actually, his initial job was as an animator. He was the person who helped build the models and and sort of the facial engine for these creatures. Uh, But later he gets a different job because as we explained, the company goes under. And his new job as like as an animator on like virtual actors for TV, which now today doesn't seem as weird as it would have been a few years ago when this came out. Yeah, um, because we now have a couple TV shows that uh, have like pretty high profile. What's that new one? Love and Robots basically is all pretty much digital animation of like virtual actors, some of which are pretty realistic looking. Oh yeah, um, I haven't seen that yet. But yeah, the implication, the way it was written, is that this was like possibly all TV was this way. Yeah, it does. Um, it does seem like maybe all TV is made with uh, like these AI characters, or they're not AI though, right? Doesn't he complain that it's all too choreographed and it's not spontaneous enough? So they're just puppets. They're just like really complex puppets, basically. Yeah, it's also yeah. He's he's a little bit bored with his job, so it's like colored a bit in yeah. <laughs> how he describes it. Um, uh, here, here's a, like one that is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, this like uh, it's like a smart transdermal, right? So, so it's like a patch that uh, has some sort of intelligence in it. Uh, it's called Instant Rapport. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> it gives you a yeah cocktail of uh, oxytocin and opioids when you're in the presence of specific people. Right. So basically, it simulates falling in love with someone uh, chemically and. Uh, you bond with them instantly. That's why it's called instant rapport. And this is uh, something that a company is actually requiring uh, Anna put on as a condition of employment, not to make her uh, like another person, but to make her like the and bond with the intelligences that they want her to train, which are these. It's the obsessive right, ones, right? These the obsessive so-fonts type, sofons, uh, AIs that nobody likes spending time with. 
And of course, she kind of uh, objects to that. I mean, it's presented as a kind of, as a ethically questionable thing even in the world, but it struck me as pretty dark actually for a world that otherwise feels um, realistic but relatively utopian. Although it could be one of those things where the story is zoomed in on a couple young professionals True. Uh, that that are doing pretty well, and, and meanwhile the masses are suffering somewhere off screen. It's true. But certainly, we don't we don't see that suffering if that's the case. But yeah, this instant rapport is actually like a a pretty big plot point. I mean, it's just sort of uh, and, and spoiler here, but I mean, we've been spoiling everything, so I mean, that shouldn't be an issue at this point. But uh, well, we haven't spoiled the know, very big... end yet. We've we've managed not to do that, but we should. Okay, well, we should warn. I'm about I think. To do okay, that. let's. We're gonna do that now. So if you want to not have the very end spoiled, stop now. All right, go ahead. And the story doesn't take long to read, so I do recommend you just read it because it's good. Uh, and then come back to us. Uh, but yeah, so uh, she's considering whether she should take this job, um, and but it's going to require her to do this sort of like sketchy thing where she has to wear this transdermal patch, and it's going to cause her to like form this weird sort of unplanned, almost coerced bond with these unlovable <laughs> creatures that she's training. Yes. Uh, so she doesn't want to do this, but she feels like she needs to do it because they're just running out of options in order to get their their AI children ported to the new uh, virtual world, right. right? It's an expensive process. Uh, programmers are costly in this world, just like they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she thinks, though, if she takes this job, she's going to have all new connections and people, and she's going to probably be able to leverage that uh, to maybe get the port done. I think that's, even that's a little bit tenuous, but, it, you know, she's in sort of a desperate situation, so she's considering it. Um and the other character, Derek, who's in love with her and has, you know, been in love with her for most of the story, but for various reasons they've never gotten together, like because they've always been with other people and so on, right. um, is in a position where he's, you know, he's trying, he doesn't want her to do this, right? Because it's sort of an awful thing, right? Right. Uh, but, I mean, can you describe his dilemma? Like, well, his he, final choice he does here? recognize that it would help him emotionally to let her do it because it will probably break up her and her current boyfriend. And he's single at this point in the story. So oh, right. Cause her current boyfriend doesn't want right, it. Either. Cause Kyle, the boyfriend, uh, very reasonably not a character at all in the story, <laughs> but he's the only thing we know about him is he doesn't want his girlfriend to wear a patch that will make her love uh, random robots. And this seems understandable to me. This is such a strange thing to choose to do uh, that people would be against it. Even Anna herself seems pretty against it. She's just willing to do the sacrifice for her uh, software object child. Um, And Derek realizes that he could say nothing and do nothing. And probably this will break them up. And then he could probably swoop in. But he just thinks it's wrong. And he does have another option, right? Because they've all been approached. Now I'm going to really spoil it. By... This company, do you remember the name? It's something Desire, but I, binary, binary Desire. Desire. Yes, yeah, right. Binary Desire, and they are a sex doll company, and they have a very, you know, progressive, forward-looking uh, view of of what uh, a sex doll should be, and they want to create basically sex dolls that enjoy the sex. That's kind of what they're trying to create, uh, and they want to use uh, these AIs as their uh, seeds. And so they're willing to put up the money for the port if somebody will license them, uh, the characters to be uh, copied and and trained on uh, uh, the ways of sex. And this is where the story ends, right? I mean, the story is called 
life cycle of software objects. It's about raising these uh, computer babies. And so once you get to sexual maturity, there's a certain um, uh, parenting singularity that happens where everything is sort of different on the other side. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, uh, Derek makes the choice of, of making the sale, right, to this company so that uh, basically to protect his love, Anna, so she doesn't have to wear this silly transdermal patch. Well, right, by allowing and- his, uh, his sons, Marco and Polo, to become the copied ones, uh, he can get the whole port done and he can save her from this patch. Uh, and he does reason whether, you know, the robots are worth as much as or more than or less than uh, uh, a human being. He does think about that. But what ultimately clinches it for him is that the robots themselves very much want to do it, right? Marco and Polo uh, seem to actually have a decent grasp of what they are as beings, and they ask him for it. And that is what ultimately convinces him, right? Yeah, and I should say that they just basically make copies of themselves right. that then go off, right? So like they're still uh, from like they are still unchanged, right? Or uh, certain instances of them are unchanged. Right. And there are a number of instances in this story, by the way, where somebody cares deeply about something that's happening to a copy of them. There's um there's this torture scare earlier in the story, and then there's this part. There's other a couple of parts where that happens, and that was always like kind of rubs me the wrong way because I'm always have this disconnect of like, well, if it's just a copy of you, why do you care so much? You know? I mean, it's one thing if you're torturing a copy of me in order to find out my secrets, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's not like I'm going to experience the pain that that Ted copy is going to experience. So I always wonder why that is something that people worry about so much, but it is something they worry about in the story. Yeah. Yeah. That when they, when they find out that there could have been a, a breach and basically their robot children could have been copied and tortured, e- even though it's not the copy that's in front of them, right. the fact that some other copy somewhere is being tortured is upsetting. I mean, I get why it's upsetting. It's just, you know, anyways, we've gone sort of far afield, but when we were talking about instant rapport, we never really quite talked about like the major use case of this in the world, right? <laughs> Which is they describe it as being like a way for, you know, to save marriages. Oh yeah. Uh, and like save bad relationships between parents and children. So like I, that just as a speculation is interesting on its own. Yeah. Independent of the plot. Do you think that's pretty plausible? I think it is. I don't think it would be a popular or common product. I mean, I think it's I think it's feasible. I think some in some rare cases like people might want I mean certainly this would be a prescribed thing like under the guidance of a physician, I would think. Like if you went in with your partner and like got a prescription for this, cause like, you know, there's, you felt like this was the only way to like patch things up. Right. I could see it in like a, a narrow context. Yeah. It seems like the kind of thing where the cultural squick factor would be pretty high, but hard to tell, I guess. Um, yeah. maybe if you had to like go to a couple's counselor and get a prescription. Another one that I wrote down was there is ovafusion genetic engineering for babies. So a lesbian couple has a baby where their eggs have been fused to create the baby, which is just something that I think about sometimes and like as a technology idea. I think that's, you know, there's obvious market for it and it seems possible technically. So I'm surprised uh, it hasn't happened yet and I think it will happen. Um, So that was a cool thing that was in there. 
Uh, another thing was the uh, the uploaded mouse. Right? Yes, uploaded mouse. I mean, this helps address the question of like, you know, why are we not seeing other paths to AI, right? Because again, one of the paths is that you eventually upload a human brain and then you get straight there, right? Right. Um, so we get some sense of how they're progressing towards that. They're not quite there because we see them at one point in the story. Uh, upload a mouse. When I say upload, they do the whole thing of like you know scanning the 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 mouse's brain like bit by bit, and then reinstantiating it in a computer, and then it like the the reinstantiation survives for a few seconds before it before it dies, uh, or has a horrible seizure and like stops functioning. But that's like the new world record for uh, uploaded creatures. Uploaded mammals, yeah. So it seems like they are struggling to upload something as complex as a mammal even though they apparently are making progress on the scanning technology uh because they are able to destructively scan this this mouse it sounded to me when i read it like they scanned the whole body of the mouse because i i did think wouldn't it make more sense to just do the brain (laughs) uh yeah that was a little but i guess i had that visual in my head too even though that really doesn't make much sense (laughs) yeah uh but anyhow that was an interesting so there's at least a an answer there for why we don't have anything like an M-brain in this world. We just haven't gotten there yet. Um, We mentioned that they had computers with gesture tracking. Oh, there's kind of an AI winter in this, which I thought was an interesting choice. And I wasn't sure if I bought it, which is that like around the time that the company goes out of business, there's just a loss of interest generally in this generation of AIs uh, because they're not, that like we said they're not that useful and they take a lot of attention and i guess you know the assumption is that new generations are going to renew interest later this is just the normal business cycle um because yeah like yeah you know the whole thing is kind of it's it's applying these business cycle sort of capitalism ideas to uh the the strange theater of raising something uh so they keep having their lives sort of affected by the whims of the market in one way or another, which I think is a thematic. I think that's like a thematic thing. The story is trying to do. That's, I, I seem to have picked up on that. No. And I, I, I like that messiness of it. Actually. I like that there's multiple products and companies and things being tried and that it's shown as difficult. Again, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that the, like this sort of hands-on human training being the only way forward is 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 makes the most sense but since that's the entire conceit of the story I'll go with that yeah. and once you once you accept that I think like the sort of messy way the the business world works and goes through cycles is is cool yeah i think it makes it feel more real yeah i think so too it makes it feel like it has a particular point oh another thing they had in the story was vanity clones um right right there's a guy who that. has an 8-year-old clone of himself and they say that it's like the kid is neurotic because he's a he's a monument to his father's narcissism or something. Oh, like I that. love that part. I love that part. <laughs> I was trying to find that today and I, I couldn't find it. But yeah. Oh man. Uh, I thought that was a great idea. I love the idea of vanity clones. You know, that really elevates the story for me, like these little like background things, right? Yeah. I mean the the, the vanity clone, I mean, uh yeah. And like I mean, do you think obviously like somebody's gonna do that. I, I mean I think that's that is portrayed just right. You know, it's not like Oh, this is like a trend that everybody's doing because obviously that's sort of silly to me. Uh, but it's like some some asshole somewhere would do. Yeah, this it's like a vanity license plate or something. You know, yeah, there's yeah, a certain yeah. personality that really wants it. And if if you have the technology to do um, OvaFusion, then you have to have the technology to do clones. So I like that the answer was yeah, it's not 
banned or anything. It's just something only jerks do. It's colored in the description, right? But I guess I'm trying to give this a little more thought now. Like, uh, I don't know. You, I guess you don't have to be a jerk. I mean, it certainly nar- feels narcissistic just like by definition. But um, like, I'm not sure that the child would have to be neurotic as a result. I mean, certainly that's how it's described in this story. Uh, well, not every child like I, of a narcissist is neurotic, but I suspect the statistical likelihood of neurosis is higher for the ch- children of narcissists. So if narcissism is one reason you might get a clone made, then I then I buy it, basically. But I mean, the message in other parts of the story, right, with Marco and Polo is they're clones, right? Thematically in the story, like the training is so important that even though they are clones, they are portrayed as quite different and, and quite deserving of individual and separate respect. Yeah. So I would say that that like some somewhat militates against the idea that, you know, if your if your son was a clone of you, I mean that wouldn't necessarily have to be like they're living in your shadow. It could just be that you have the same genes but actually in practice you are two very different people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, or perhaps I, his ner- narcissism would be so powerful uh, he wouldn't be affected by yours. <laughs> that's true. The son's got the same right? narcissist genes. I mean, if it's genetic <laughs> and not uh environmental, which I have no idea whether it is or not. But uh yeah, I mean, I think you could go different ways with it. I thought it was fine as an anecdotal example, but yeah, I agree. It could be more, you know, these things are not so deterministic as that. This is a really interesting story. I, I think we should probably give our grade on it. What do you think? It's not my favorite Ted Chang story ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, on average, he's good, right? He's very good. Right. So I'm going to give it a B, it's still his B is like, you know, better than a lot of people. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not my favorite, so I'm not going to give it an A. Like, just compared to other stories in this collection, even. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'll also give it a B. Um, I will say I liked it better the second time I read it, uh, because I did read this years ago when it uh, came out, and I had forgotten a lot of details. And when I reread it uh, for this podcast, I was reminded... Uh, primarily how rich the world was, which was something I hadn't remembered. And I think that is my favorite part of it. The part I found the hardest to connect with was the human story. Uh, I liked the moment where Derek makes a sacrifice and and does the thing. Um, But I found that story to be a bit cold. And then the intellectual story of uh, the raising of Jackson, Marco, and Polo and how they uh, become you know, more curious and more mature over the course of it, uh, I I thought was okay, but but could have been maybe more complex, especially if they had been allowed to to talk more uh, normally toward the end. I definitely agree with that, that you said. Overall, I think I agree with you. It's a B. It's not my favorite one of his stories. At their best, the stories really uh, uh, ignite on all levels. This one is intellectually more interesting than it was uh, emotionally affecting but uh, for the world building, I think it still still gets that B because it, it is really a pretty deeply thought out world, I think. Well, why don't we end on this final note then, mm-hmm. right? Because this is a great collection. I don't think we're going to be reviewing any other stories from it, Yeah, I think it, right? we'll move on from this now. Uh, although you should tell us what you think. If you want us to do more of these, we can. Since this may be the last Ted Chiang episode for a while, what is your favorite story in the collection that we have not already reviewed? Oh, um... I'll give mine if uh, you need time. You give yours. I need to look up the the list. So for me, it was actually the the title story. Uh, it was uh, Exhalation, 
which is a much, much shorter one. And, and to me, this is, in a way, this is the opposite of his first collection. His first collection, the title story was uh, Story of My Life and Others, which later became the movie Arrival, right. which was actually my least favorite story in the first book and is still to this day my least favorite Ted Chiang story ever, which is why it's disappointing to me that it's also the only one that's been adapted. But uh, in this case, uh, I actually thought the title story was fantastic. It's really... Again, a small, focused story. It's really out there. I'm not even going to try to explain it. I'm just going to recommend that uh, everyone go out there and read it. But I thought it was great. Yeah, I really liked that one too. And I was reminded while I was reading it of one of my favorite uh, Philip K. Dick stories, the story Electric Ant, uh, which you might know, John. Uh, and then I was uh, uh, delighted and surprised to find in the notes of the book that Ted Chang specifically was inspired by that story when he wrote Exhalation, which uh, made sense to me when I read it. Um, I actually haven't read that Philip K. Dick, so maybe I'll Oh, that's that a out. great one. I won't tell you what it is, but it is it is uh, 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 one of my favorites of, of his, and you know he has many great short stories. Um, I think my favorite from this one, this book, uh, might be the Prism one, which is, that's called... Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, right? Do I have that? That sounds, yeah, I, I think that's the, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I'm looking at the titles, titles and I, I wasn't totally sure, but I believe that's the name of it. And it's about this world where they have, and this is a completely new, like, science fiction, uh, what if premise to me. I'd never heard of this particular premise, which is that it's a quantum decision that this prism makes. And then once that decision is made, it splits the world into two from that moment. So it's a little bit similar to like sliding doors, but in sliding doors, human decision-making causes infinite worlds. Uh, this is a more limited thing where you have to intentionally activate one of these things to create a division. And then from that moment, the worlds diverge and diverge uh, until the prism runs out of like storage space, and then they go off on their separate ways. So it's a way of talking about the effects of various decisions uh, in a really sort of complex and technologically mediated way. And uh, yeah, I won't say any more about it than that. It's a long, complicated story, but I really liked it. I thought it had a lot going on. In I it. thought that one was really good as well. So highly recommend the collection. Uh, everyone should check it out uh, if you haven't already. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So until next time, I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.